The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. The point of our message today in Genesis 37 through 39 is that the Lord God provides for and protects Joseph to fulfill his purpose. In chapter 37, verse 1, it says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. So what takes place from chapter 37 to chapter 50 is the focus of Jacob's family. Now you would think the focus is on Jacob. Primarily, it's centered around Joseph. We're told in verse 2, Joseph at this moment in chapter 37 is 17 years old. He's a shepherd. He's pastoring flocks with his brothers who are also shepherds. And we're told in verse two that he brought a bad report of them, that is brothers, to his father. Then we're given this detail. Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Now that's ironic because Jacob grew up with his father Isaac loving his brother Esau more than he loved Jacob. You see him passing on the sin of his father. Not only did he love him more, he made him a robe of many colors. All we can say is the robe is distinct. It stands out, probably reflects some form of a royal fault. Now this doesn't go well because it says in verse four, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all their other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. They didn't even talk to him right. They hated him. His father loved him, but his brothers hates him. Now we have two dreams in verses five through eight at the first dream. Joseph has a dream. He dreams that he was binding sheaves in a field that's tying grain together. And behold, his sheaf arose and stood upright and his brother's sheaves gathered around it and bowed down. His brother said in verse eight, are you indeed to reign over us or shall you indeed rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So the hatred now is escalating. Dream number two. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is the dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed to bow, come to bow down ourselves to you before the ground? In other words, son, I wouldn't have told this. Verse 11. And his brothers were jealous of him. Now we've moved from hatred to jealousy. But it says, but his father kept in mind the saying. Now this kind of harkened over the New Testament. Mary pondered these things in her heart. She's remembering this for a future date. Now these two dreams are foreshadowing on what's going to happen. These things are going to take place in Joseph's life. And we'll see this as we unfold Genesis. But the pathway that how he's going to get here to where his brothers and even his father are gonna bow down to him, the pathway how he gets here is very unlikely. So the first thing I want you to see is the Lord's unlikely plan for Joseph. I don't know if you've ever been in a point in your life to where you're involved in a situation where you're confused and concerned to the point that you're saying, Lord, have you forgotten me? And, And you think, how can this be? How can this continue? I'm not going to get into details, and I know there'll be people watching today who were a part of the church I was at before I came here who have no idea what I'm talking about. Don't even try to pursue. 
But the last year and a half at my former church was awful. There's things that were going on behind the scenes, things that I witnessed and observed that were heartbreaking. It made me question whether I wanted to be in the ministry. It made me question whether I really, at moments, believed. It was tough. There were times when I prayed, God, how can this be? Now, standing here before you some 25 years later, I can look back and I can see God's providential hand working through that awful time to prepare me to do what I do today. You see, that's how God's providence works. We don't always see it when it's happening. But later on, we can look back and we can see God's hand at work. The first thing we see is Joseph send, Jacob sends Joseph to his brothers. Verses 12 through 17, he tells him to go to his brothers out in the field who are keeping sheep. Now remember, he's 17 years old. I just want you to notice this in verse 15. A man found him wandering in the fields. If you've ever sent a teenage boy to get something for you, you understand this verse, okay? He's just out there roaming around. They're not where they're supposed to be. This guy's like, son, what are you doing out here? They moved to Dothan. So Joseph, unlike most teenage boys who would have given up and went home, Joseph continues on to Dothan. Now, in verse 18, the perspective of the story changes. We're now getting the perspective from the brother's point of view. And what we're gonna see here is that his brothers plot to kill him. They saw him from afar, verse 18. How did they know it was Joseph? The coat. They saw that coat glimmering in the sun and they knew here comes the dreamer. So they said, before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. So the plan is made before he rises. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer, come now, let us kill him, throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animals have devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben, now what birth order is Reuben? It's important. First, he's the oldest. So he's acting like the oldest son here. He realizes this responsibility is on me. He rescued him out of their hands and saying, let us not take his life. Reuben said, shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And then we're given this aside that he might rescue him from their hand to restore him to his father. So he's got a secret plan. He's gonna rescue him. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit and the pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then the beginning of verse 25 says, then they sat down to eat. Now, <clears throat> it's ironic here that they planned to say that an evil beast had devoured Joseph after, then after they attacked him, they sat down to eat. So what the text here is signifying to you is who the evil beasts actually are. It's his brothers who with no thought sit down to eat. A new plan emerges now. They decide not to kill him. They decide to sell him into slavery. Verse 25. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead and with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh on their way down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Now I have this underlined and circled in my Bible because here's what you need to notice. Jo Judah enters the story in a semi-positive way. 
The scripture wants to make sure that you stay connected to Judah. Judah's important. He's the fourth son. His idea is let's not kill him. He goes on to say, he is our brother, our own flesh. Now this pricks the conscience of his brothers and they listen. Verse 29, 28, excuse me. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver and they took Joseph to Egypt. Then when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? So he thinks they've killed him or something. What am I gonna do? So in between 30 and 31, they must explain to him. So they do this. They took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped it in the robe in blood, and then sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found, please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. So Jacob thinks Joseph is dead. And he thinks this for a very long time. He tore his garments, put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. And all of his sons and all of his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son to mourning. Now notice his sons are comforting him. That's deceptive. Thus the father went for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him to e in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. All that detail is important. So now he's in Egypt. All right, what follows verse 35 of chapter 37? It's very simple. Chapter 38. Okay, it's very simple. Chapter 38 has nothing to do with Joseph. It's about Judah and Tamar. It's quite a story. Now, in a moment, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna answer the question, why is chapter 38 right here? Because turn, if you'd have to, I have to turn the page. If I come to verse 39, it says, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the garden Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down from there. Now that clearly ties you back to the end of chapter 37. Same details, a little more extensive. So he's living in Potiphar's house. This guy's an important dude for Pharaoh in Egypt. Now here's a big difference, verse two, which leads me to my next main point. The Lord's protection of and provision for Joseph. God is silent in chapter 37. He's never assigned to anything. Now we know providentially God is working behind the scenes and underneath what's happening. That's gonna be clarified in a moment. But here overtly, the Bible tells you that God is at work. Watch what it says. I'd underline this if I was marking in my Bible. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that he caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Now I want you to get a couple details here. Does Joseph cease to be a slave? No. Master is repeated in there several times. He remains a slave, but Potiphar notices this Hebrew is blessed by his God. God is at work in this man and that what this man does succeeds. This man is a tremendous leader. 
God's able to use his leadership in, in incredible ways. So Potiphar trusts him. Go to verse five. From that time, he made him the overseer in his house and all that he had, underlining again, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now, we move to a section that is really at first glance confusing. Everything's going great for Joseph. Remember, he's a slave. Then you enter Potiphar's wife. <clears throat> it says, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a long time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, because of my master, of me, my master has no concern for anything in his house. He has put everything he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house. He is not greater in the house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. Then he goes deeper. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph's making two arguments. I respect my master, your husband, but greater than that, how can I do this wickedness and sin against God? These two things held in tension are what keep him resisting and pushing back from Potiphar's wife. Now this goes on, verse 10, day after day, and it says he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day he went into the house to do his work and, not, and none of the men of the house were there in the house. She caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. Now, I want you to put this in your head. Here, what's her logic? Her logic is nobody's around, he'll give in. Nobody's gonna see what he's gonna do. So now he's gonna give in. And by the way, I failed to mention this a moment ago. It was very common for slave owners to use their slaves for sex. It was a common thing to happen. But Joseph refuses this. So it says, she caught him by the garment. He left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of the household and said, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And soon he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her master came home. And she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came to me to laugh at me. Now, who's that sound like? You gotta go back in your Bible to the third chapter of Genesis. When Adam says to God, it's this woman you brought here. So she's blaming her husband you brought this Hebrew here. This is your fault this happened. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled her house. Now, just interesting from a story perspective to notice that a garment is involved in both of these deceptive moments in Joseph's life. Now, I'm gonna step outside the story for a moment and I'm gonna go back and answer my question. Why is Genesis 38 between 37 and 39? Why is it sandwiched in the middle of this story? For you to understand that, let me briefly tell you what 38 does. 38 is one of the most difficult 
chapters in the Bible to read. Um, it's just hard. Not that it's hard to understand. It's very clear. It's just hard to believe it's there. Here's what happens. Judah marries a Canaanite. Is he supposed to do that? No. Judah marries a Canaanite, has three sons. His oldest son marries a woman named Tamar. We don't know what he did, but in chapter 38, we're told he does wicked in the sight of God and God kills him. So Tamar is handed over to the second son of Judah and he's supposed to have children with her. He does a wicked thing. The Bible explicitly explains it to you. He does a wicked thing and will not allow her to conceive a child. So what does God do to him? He kills him. So now Judah's got one son left. He's still a kid. So Judah says to Tamar, you wait till he grows up and then he'll be your husband and the family will be carried on. Now time passes in the story. It happens real quick, just in a verse or two. You go ratchet ahead several years and then you're told Judah's wife dies. She's dead. He goes out to shear the sheep on his way going. Tamar goes ahead of him takes off her mourning clothes and dresses herself like a prostitute. He comes to her and then hires her as a prostitute, Judah and his daughter-in-law. This is a wicked thing. They agree on a payment of a goat, but until that, he gives a down payment of a cord and his staff. He goes on from there, shears the sheep, comes back. Months later, somebody comes and says, Tamar's done wicked, she's pregnant. So you know what Judah's solution is? Anybody know? What? He's going to kill her. He's not just going to kill her. You know how he's going to do it? He's going to burn her to death. Now that's indignation. Who can believe she's done this? Well, she comes to the tribunal. What do you think Tamar shows up with? Staff and a cord. To which Judah responds, she's more righteous than I am. And then the Bible gives you this detail. Not only does he not kill her, he never touches her again. Now, Tamar gives birth to twins. The oldest twin's name is Perez. I just want you to hold that. That's in chapter 38, verses 27 to 30. Now, let me go back and answer my question with that story. Why is that lurid story between 37 and 39? First, from a pure narrative perspective, it's filling in the gap of the 20 years between Joseph being sold into slavery and where you pick up with Potiphar's wife. Time has passed. During this period of time is when this Judah Tamar thing happens. So that's one answer. The second answer comes to a sexual ethic. You certainly see two sexual ethics put side by side. You see the awful sexual ethic of Judah and his sons, and you see the impeccable sexual ethic of Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Now, most people, most people would launch into a, a sermon about sexual ethics here, and I'm not saying that would be totally wrong. I'm just saying that's not the point. That's not why Genesis 38 is in between. Turn to Matthew chapter one and I'll show you why. Now, while you're turning there, I wanna ask you a question. 
If you're logically thinking about the Bible, just being logical, forget, forget you know the outcome, if you do know. Forget you know the outcome. You're just logically looking at the Bible. Which dude is the seed coming from? Judah or Joseph? It's Joseph. Man, this dude is, this dude is squeaky clean. I mean, he does what is right. It's gotta be, the seed has gotta come from Joseph. God's gotta be doing something wrong. Here's why Genesis 38's in the Bible. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of, Dave, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac was the father of Jacob and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez. It's where the seed comes, friends. It's an unlikely place. If you keep pressing down through Matthew's gospel, three other women are gonna come up. Rahab, she's a what? Ruth, she uh, a Moabite. And Bathsheba, conceived in adultery. All these people are from outside of Israel. It's an irregular and even scandalous marriage unions for most. But here's what God's showing you, that because of their faith, God uses them to carry the royal seed. And what God is showing you here is that his salvation is not just for the Jews. His salvation is also for the Gentiles. And his salvation is not for those who are morally upright. His salvation is for sinners. Now, let me be careful here. Let's go back and say why 37, 38, and 39 are together. You don't need to think for a moment that we can wink at sin. That's not what God's doing here. God's not saying you just do whatever you want to and God's gonna save you anyway. That's not what God's saying. But God is clearly communicating his grace and his salvation. Now, <clears throat> one deeper meaning then why Joseph? Why all this detail about Joseph? Because God's gonna use Joseph to protect the continuation of the seed. Joseph is the means that the Lord is going to use to protect his people. And here's how he's gonna do it. He's gonna send him to prison. Back to chapter 39. As soon as his master heard the words of his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. He's quoting his wife. His anger was kindled. Now, I think it's interesting that anger is not assigned to a person here. I think it's very possible he's also angry with his wife. He probably knows the woman very well. And Joseph's masters took him and put him into prison. What should he have done to Joseph? Do you know? Should have killed him for raping his wife. Should have had him put to death. But instead, he puts him in prison, and not just any prison, Verse 20 says, the place where the king's prisoners were confined and he was there in prison. So he's now associated with the king who is Pharaoh of Egypt. 
Verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison and whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So God blesses this man in prison, but don't forget, don't forget he's in prison. So not only is he a slave, he's a slave now in prison. You gotta ask the question then, why is this happening? What is God doing? Why is all this happening to Joseph? Chapter 50, verse 20. We quote half of this verse. This is Joseph addressing his brothers. We'll have an entire message centered around chapter 50 in a few weeks. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. There's not a period, there is a comma to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's why God did this for Joseph, is to keep his people alive. And not only does he keep them alive, they come to Egypt, they multiply exponentially, and then they return to Canaan with great possessions, just like God promised in Genesis 15, 13 through 16 would happen. This is a quote from Vody Balcom. Joseph's journey from Potiphar to prison is a reminder that God does not balance the scales in the here and now. He certainly doesn't always tilt them in our individual favor. He does, however, work all things according to the counsel of his perfect immutable will, and he uses frowning providence to accomplish his redeeming work. Therein lies our hope. Thus we can say with Job, though he slay me, I will trust him. Now, this text leads us to application. To ask the question, so what? What does this mean for me? The answer is that the Lord God provides for and protects his people to fulfill his purpose. Now, this is what God is doing. Turn with me to Romans 8, 28. Another verse that we quote half of. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. Most people, you think there's a period there, right? Now, first of all, I want you to notice, we, we misquote it. We just say, God works everything for the good. No, it's not what it says. It says, for those who love God, God is working everything for the good. Then it says in verse 28, for those who are called according to what? his purpose. You are not the center of the universe, friend. And some of you have been exposed to a theology that's taught you that, that you're the center of the universe. You're not. God is the center. God's purpose is the center. His purpose in and through us is what he is doing. So how do we know, how do we know this audacious statement of the scripture that God works all things for good. We know that because we look at places like Joseph and we see God working for the good. We look at the story of Israel and we see God working for the good. We even look at stories like Judah and Tamar and David and Bathsheba and we see God working for the good. But most clearly, most clearly we see God working for the good in the life of Jesus Christ. The sinless perfect man, the very son of God, suffered and died unjustly in our place. 
God the Father crushed Christ the Son on our behalf. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on the cross and provided for those who believe eternal life and everlasting peace with God. Now that's just something that rolls off the tongue and we hear, folks, I just said, Christ through awful circumstances suffered in our place to provide for us not just to keep us alive for a few years, but to keep us alive forever. Now, now here, here's where it comes down in the good old South. Where I can't wait to go to heaven and be with grandma. That ain't why I'm going to heaven. I love my grandmother. But I'm not going to heaven to be with my grandma. I'm going to heaven to be with Jesus. And I am going to live at peace with God forever. Folks, that is an astounding thought that I, a sinner, that you, a sinner, are going to live in the very presence of God forever. That's happening for the believer because of what Christ has provided for you. God in Christ has worked all things together for good. So we've got to ask this question then. Why do bad things happen to us? We ask this question, why are bad things happening to Christians? I don't want to belittle what I'm going to say. I am grateful that we celebrated the 4th of July. I'm, gra- I'm, I'm grateful for the freedoms that we have. I am grateful for that. But what if you didn't have them? Would you still follow Jesus? And you need to know there are millions of Christians around the world who don't have your freedoms who still follow Jesus. So why has God let bad things happen to believers? Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? All right, listen to me. Here's his argument. Here's his argument. It may go awful with you. You may even lose your life because of Jesus. But when you stand before God, nobody's going to separate you from the love of God. Nobody. Nobody's going to stand at that tribunal and bring a charge against God's elect. And we're not going to stand there and say, well, I didn't have sex with Potiphar's wife. You know, I was a good dude. No. We're going to stand behind the blood of Jesus. That's the point of Romans 8. Our only hope is Christ and what Christ has done and what Christ has provided for us. So I close with this question. And I want you to track with me as I ask this question. It's not in your notes. Am I living, living 
Am I living by faith, by fate, or by moral manipulation? You say, I have no idea what in the world you're talking about. I'm glad you don't, so let me explain it. Somebody will still say this, and somebody sort of did. They tried not to, but they did. Pastor, glad you had 25 years. Good luck on your next 25. That's not Christian. We don't live by fate. I don't live off of luck, and you don't either. Anything that you have, anything that's been provided in your life, anything that you're ever going to have, any blessing or possession is not the result of fate. Do you live by moral manipulation? You know what? I know this. I know this. And you need to own this. You need to be convicted because this is sin. Some of you are at church today. You go to church regularly because you're trying to get God to get, to get God's attention. Some of you give money so you get God's attention. Some of you do certain activities and certain moral things to get God's attention. And here's what you think. This is very American. If I do good, then God has to bless. That's moral manipulation. And that too is not biblical. What do we live then? We live by faith and not by, so we don't live based off what we see. We don't look at what's going on in our life and, and base our faith on what we see. We, we don't determine in the future whether we're gonna follow Jesus based on what we see and touch. We live by faith. This is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This will consume the rest of my ministry. This will consume the next series I preach when I return in Galatians, no other gospel. What will consume me is confronting the Southern theological idea that we can earn God's favor. It is a false gospel and it is wrong. Brothers and sisters, we who are in Christ have been crucified with Christ. That means we are now identified with the crucified Savior. We now live by faith. That's how we live. We live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. So brothers and sisters, my prayer for you, my prayer for you is when you get up and walk out of these doors in a minute, that you walk out of here in faith. Not fate and not in moral manipulation, but faith in the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the only Savior. You are the only means to salvation. We cannot save ourselves. But Lord, I confess that I have heard 
and I have misheard, and there are people in this room who have misheard, who have heard the story of Joseph taken and formed into a moral story to tell us things that we do and we get God's favor and then we get successful. God, you were orchestrating in Joseph's life for your purpose. You blessed him for your purpose. You were orchestrating in our lives for your purpose and any blessing that we receive is for your purpose. God, I confess on behalf of the people in this room that we have tried to manipulate our faith far too often to get what we want. I pray today that we would take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow you. And that by faith and faith alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.